Let's talk lunchtime. Remember the good old days when we weren't afraid of sandwiches? The carb fear is real, you guys. Uh, so many of my friends are watching carbs, but it's tough. I mean, the best things in life have carbs, right? Hero Bread makes those same delicious favorites free of consequences or compromises. Their breads contain zero to one grams of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and they're even high in fiber. That's not all. The taste and texture are spot on. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying like a savory breakfast burrito or a mouth-watering cheeseburger. Hero Bread has it figured out. So don't give up being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. So go to hero.co and use code love at checkout. That's love at H-E-R-O dot C-O. When I wrote my first book, having an online store was the furthest thing from my mind. Now I'm able to share my books, fun t-shirts, more, all in my online shop. And it's so easy, all because I use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. I love how Shopify works. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash for the love, all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash for the love now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash for the love. Hey everybody, Jen Hatmaker here. You're Delighted host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm grinning because I just finished today's interview and it just inspired me and delighted me. And my brain was just firing off ideas and responses. And I think you're going to love it. We're in a series right now called For the Love of What If. And this was just some weird idea I had last year. And I'm like, I just think we as a community are just sitting on a gold mine of possibility at all times. And we're just a couple of clicks away from it always. And my thought was just what if, like, what if we went for something? What if we tried something new? What if we pulled the trigger on a thing that we'd been marinating in for a while? Like, why not us? You know, just what if, what if we went for it? And not just in one capacity, not like, what if we tried a new career? Although that's embedded in the series, but just kind of all the things like, what if I ran a marathon? I've been thinking about it for a decade, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And so we wanted to build capacity around asking our own selves that question. What if, what if I went for it? So in this episode, I really love this one because this feels so inspiring We're imagining what it means to use the skills and gifts that you already have. This is your background. This is your vocation. This is your education. This is your experience. So you have this asset that you're holding. And the question in this series around what if, and specifically what this guest is going to bring to the table today, is what if you used some imagination some vision 
in how your skills, the one that you are already using, could affect your community for good, or even just how you approach your job, how you execute your job, where you do your job. What do you bring to the table with your whole thing that could be a force of good for your community or for the people around you? So I love this question. I just absolutely love it because all of us are already sitting here on top of something. Every one of you listening has something that you are good at and experienced at. And so this is just like a tweak of vision and innovation. Our guest today has degrees in architecture and design, but she decided to approach how she uses both that education and skill set to affect the world around her. So I just, it's so exciting to hear her talk. Among many things, Emily Pilliton Lamb created a nonprofit called Girls Garage, where she teaches young girls and all really gender expansive youth to build with their hands and learn power tools and build confidence, not just in their designs, but in their capacity, their capability to build their designs. And I love this idea so much of using our skills and strengths to build a better world. And in Emily's case, she went from this moment of feeling what a power tool was like in her hands for the good of the community, and it changed her life. Do you know that only 13% of engineers and only 20% of licensed architects are women? It's pretty low. That's pretty underrepresented. And only 30% of women who earn a degree in engineering are still working in the field 20 years later. So we have a retention problem as well as just getting women in the pipeline in the first place. And this is a conversation that Emily and I had, which is, it's both sobering and exciting when you think about what's possible. All of that female brain trust just drained out of the industry over the years. What would the world look like if women were also helming all sorts of positions in the industry? What would a world also built by women look like? And then what would it do for us? Would we trust our hands more? Would we trust our voices more? Would we trust our vision and our creativity more if the environment around us was built more by us and for us? I think it would ultimately begin to create a more equitable world. So again, we're going to talk about all this and more today with Emily Pilliton lamb Emily is the founder and executive director of the nonprofit Girls Garage, designer, a builder, an educator, an author. She has taught thousands of young girls and gender expansive youth how to use power tools and weld and build projects for their communities. Emily's everywhere. She has presented her work and ideas on the TED stage, the Colbert Report, CNN, and even in the whole documentary film, If You Build It. She's the author of three books about the power of community-based architecture. And she's a lecturer in the College of Environmental Design at the University of California, Berkeley. And she lives with her family, human and canine, both in Oakland, California. I found her 
fascinating and interesting and smart and a genuine visionary in her specific corner of the world. And I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation. And I hope it gets your brain buzzing around what it is that you have to offer this world to. So you guys, I'm so pleased to share my conversation with the absolutely fascinating Emily Pilliton Lamb. Emily, welcome to the For the Love podcast. I'm so happy to meet you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, okay, Emily, I've told my listeners just a teeny bit about who you are and your just really cool initiative and work in the world. Can you take just a minute before we sort of drill into it? Talk about kind of in your own words, like, this is who I am. This is where I am. This is kind of my deal in the world. This is what I'm focusing on these days. And then we'll like get down into it all. Great. Yeah. Gosh. There, I mean, there's so many ways I identify. I feel like I wear a lot of different hats, but Great. at my core, I am a builder. I am a woman of color. I live in Oakland, California. I am an activist. And, you know, on paper, my resume looks like I studied architecture and worked in construction management. But on a day to day basis, I am usually surrounded by 12 to 24 children and a lot of power tools at the same time. So (laughs) I find myself building a lot of very cool stuff of an architectural scale with young people. And that is like really the primary thing that I do every day and very much like the thing I feel like I was born to do. Absolutely. I have no doubt about that. And I can't wait to hear more about that. Let's go back first. Let's roll your story back and begin really with your rise into the world of construction and architecture, period. I think that you said you worked on your first construction site at maybe 16. And so I'd love to hear, let's take us take us back to that part of your story. What prompted you to volunteer? How did that feel to you? Like, why were you there? And how did that meet your expectations or exceed them? And then what sort of curiosity did that obviously birth in you for later? Sure. Yeah. I, this is such a good question because actually what you just asked me about how I identify is is deeply and directly connected to it. So, you know, I grew up in Northern California in a pretty small town and I was the only non-white student in my school for most of my K through 12 years. And I I say that because that formed me in a lot of different ways. I think the primary thing was that I always, always felt like I was different. And on the surface, like I was, I was always the person who was identifying my place in a space by my difference. And so when I was in my teenage years, you know, I think for a lot of teenagers that that is the time where you really start to examine who you are and how who you are butts up against or fits into your social circles. And so around age 15, 16, I was really struggling to figure out like, how do I fit into this community to my school. I was a super nerd. I I loved school. I was like the kid that took every AP class and like couldn't get enough. But I was also an athlete. Like I played all the sports. I just did all the things. I was really in search of the thing that would feel like this is who I am. And so after my junior year of high school, I joined this service trip to Belize with a bunch of other teenagers from all over the country. And we were there pretty much all summer living in a, a small town. I lived with a local family. 
and we built a town park. And the entire purpose of this trip was to learn construction skills and build something in collaboration with local masons and carpenters that would be of service. And this trip like completely transformed how I thought about myself, how I looked at the world as something that I could act upon and have an impact on and not just be an observer of or something that was acting on me. So yeah, I, I came to, I went to Belize in, in search of something. And I think what I discovered through the act of building was both the physical power of it. Like I could build something that was tangible and I could point to it and say, I built that. And we built that as a group of people working together. But also, this was one of the first times where I looked around and there were other teenagers who were diverse, who were from all over the country, who had all kinds of various like family stories, school experiences. And yet we were all on this construction site building this thing together. And it just felt like a light went off. Like this is the thing that makes me feel powerful and purposeful and that I don't have to check who I am at the door, that I could be my full self. So that's the gift that I that I think construction gave to me at a young age. And it's a, it's a gift that I have committed my adult life to, you know, paying forward and paying back and, and giving back to other young people. Mm, I love it so much. We're about to talk about Girls Garage. But if I could just like stay here for one more minute, because the majority of my listening audience are women. And by hook or by crook, whether it is because... We are socialized in a different direction because maybe our dads or the men in our lives and communities taught our brothers instead of us. If we were expected to learn one set of skills and the boys were expected to learn another, however you want to parse it out, it was probably all those things. I know that I can speak for probably a lot of my listeners and in some cases, even myself, that power tools and building things are just outside of our purview. They can be intimidating. I did not grow up with anybody putting a hammer or a saw in my hands and saying, you are powerful. You are a creator. You could be a builder. I know that we can be because I create all kinds of things with my hands. This is just a different genre. But I think these expectations for women and girls If you just don't identify as anything, but basically a cis white male in the world of tools and constructions, it's just, it's over there. And so I love this because you also have the, you may be mighty with a saw, but you are also mighty with a pen. You wrote this in Forbes, in a Forbes article. You said, when I used to miter saw for the first time, it's 12 inch blades spinning at 3000 RPM to cut through lumber like butter. I feel like a superhero. With a firm grip and focused eye, the machine screamed, the sawdust flew, and what was once one wooden board became two. It was as if the might of the saw itself had osmosed into my hands, arms, and heart. Well, I read that and I'm there. Like, I'm there with you. You like brought me right into that moment. I wonder if you could talk about that specifically and what was going on in your mind and in your body and in your heart. And then... I'd just love to hear you touch on, and we're obviously going to get into this more once we get into Girls Garage, but what are women maybe missing out on by us continuing to assign this to the men? That's yes. a lot. Good luck in no, there. That's, that's... Just pick, <laughs> just good luck. Okay, whatever yep. you want to pick out of that whole thing, pick it. 
All right, here goes. 45 minutes. Uh-huh. Yes, exactly. No, I remember that moment. I remember a lot of moments of my first time using a specific tool. And the miter saw, chop saw was certainly one. I felt the same way when I learned how to MIG weld when I was in graduate school. Just certain tools, like they they sort of transcend what feels like real life. And I think at our core, I mean, we can go back to caveman days, like the tool was a way of amplifying the physical human body's power. And so, you know, in a very sort of direct sense, like when I say I felt like a superhero, I I was, I was doing something that my body couldn't have done alone. And there's not a lot of experiences in your daily life where you actually, where you get to feel like, okay, here's what I can do as one person, but here's what I can do with a tool or with a community. Like, that experience of, I think that's what I was feeling in my body, that there was this expansiveness to my capability that was just in that one moment, like this very powerful, slightly scary tool, often fear and feeling powerful come hand in hand, that that's what I was experiencing, that I could do more than I thought and more than I had expected or been told that my body could do. I think this is also why this is so powerful for for women and for gender expansive individuals specifically, because so much of our lives, and as you said, like we will save the reasons why for another episode, but I think that for women, a lot of our lives are influenced by or sometimes dictated by how we view our bodies in the world. And so to just have a thing communicate to you like, oh, you thought you could do this? You can do 5,000 times more. I've seen this with so many young, young women. I've seen this with grown women. It's like a moment of transformation. They become four inches taller. They stand differently. They just have this look on their face like, oh my God, I had no idea. And so this is how I think about power tools. Like, of course, they're, you know, they're fun. They're exciting to learn, but they're like a real metaphor for what women can do and what women can contribute in the world in a physical way. Yeah, Yeah, I love it. You completed a BA in architecture and then an MFA in architecture and interior architecture and designed objects. I want to talk about that really quickly because it wasn't long after that you started Girls Garage. But I just kind of want to talk about your experience, first of all, in college and in your graduate degree. The data around the disproportionate amount of men inside these spaces as women, it's very clear. You were in probably every kind of minority, right? As a student, I'd love to hear about your experience. First of all, choosing that type of study. And then what was it like for you? I'd love to know what your lived experience was as a woman of color inside a decidedly white man's world. Yeah, I had a hard time in college. I, you know, I went to UC Berkeley. I've taught at UC Berkeley. I appreciate, I understand what UC Berkeley is. It's an incredible institution. The architecture school or department at UC Berkeley is incredible. Like really game-changing, world-changing people have taught there and come out of there. So I know that I was a part of a learning community that was really high caliber. That said, I really did struggle mostly socially. And for a lot of the reasons you just said, there was a certainly more diversity in that program than there was at my high school. But I really struggled to make the connection between what I was doing in my academic program and who I was as a person. And maybe this is like a tall order. I, you know, it's hard to, at age 19, 
figure out that level of meaning. But I think after having gone to Belize and experiencing that, that was like my standard. And I just was like, I'm going to study architecture because I want to further my knowledge of what it means to shape the world and what it means to build things. And I was a little disappointed. I was disappointed that architectural education in general is or was, it's actually becoming more this way, but was not centered on social impact, on communities, on sustainability, all the things that made me fall in love with architecture. And this is like the mid to late 90s before we were talking about these things as part of any academic course of study. I struggled in the academic I just was like, I don't, I don't know how to do this. One very specific example, I had a a senior year studio that was supposed to be like our capstone studio. And there was a project assigned to us where we had to design this very specific thing. And I remember thinking, why? Like, this is so dumb. Like, why am I designing this? It was a velodrome, like an indoor bike racing. I remember being like, why? This makes no sense. And so I instead, I did do the velodrome, but then I designed affordable housing adjacent to and on top of it. And I got a D in that class. Uh, Oh gosh. And I got a D on that project. Uh And I just remember thinking like, you know what? I don't care. You know, I did a project I'm really proud of. And so, you know, I I don't know if my, if my mother is listening, this may be the first time she heard I got a D, but (laughs) I think that was also sort of the theme of my undergraduate learning is like, I was really struggling to get back that feeling that I had in Belize and I wasn't finding it in an academic architecture program. That said, when I went to graduate school, so I went to the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, I got an MFA, not a master of architecture. It was very purposeful. I wanted to have the space to learn all the things that I felt like I was still hungry to learn. Right. So I spent two years in Chicago, which happens to be where I was born. I have some family there and I just, I love Chicago with all my heart. Those two years, I just spent two years in the shop, like walking in and saying, teach me how to weld. I took classes in so many different artistic disciplines and it was exploratory. It felt like maybe because it was an art school and so much of the, of the discovery you do in art school is about who you are and how to translate your story into something tangible. So that really resonated with me. And I think going to an art school and studying architecture was the thing that then set me up to start a nonprofit that was rooted in who I was, but also like this larger idea about service that would bring other people into. I love that. I think that's fantastic. Y'all, I am excited about this. I'm planning a Nashville trip this spring. You know I love that town. Planning and researching trips is my jam. 90s country music is my other jam. And I found an app that offers guided tours of Ryman Auditorium and Country Music Hall of Fame. Like, be still my achy, breaky heart. As soon as I saw this option on Viator, I knew this was something Tyler and I had to do. Viator has over 300,000 bookable travel experiences in over 190 countries, from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche stuff in between. When you book a travel experience with Viator, there's always flexibility and support with free cancellation, payment options, and 24-7 service. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, Over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. 
You're done with your Chicago school. In two years time, you are starting a nonprofit. You're starting Girls Garage. So can you walk us through like that season of your life? And when you first came out and thought, okay, maybe I'll find this already cooked. Maybe I'll find this an already baked in spot that I just plug in and this is my deal. And then of course, probably not two years later, you're starting your own thing. Yep. Yes. Gosh. You know, it's it's so interesting because when I talk to high school students now or graduates or alumna of Girls Garage who are in college, like they seem to really have it together. And I'm like, God, I did not have it together. You know, (laughs) it's so, it's so impressive. So no, when I left graduate school, I, exactly what you said. I was like, okay, I get it. I want to practice architecture in a way that is, uh, you know, socially impactful and that pays my bills ideally. And, you know, it turns out in 2000, Five when I graduated from grad school, that that was not a thing. It, there was no, there was not a space in the architectural community yet that was that was really practicing. And I use that term like there was no architectural practice that was rooted in social justice in serving communities that couldn't otherwise afford architectural services. I mean, architecture is a, an industry for the one percent most people will never hire an architect. And so to even like at age 23, come out of graduate school and say, okay, I'm ready to work as an architect for the people. No, like there was nowhere for me to do that. And so I kind of resigned myself to the fact like, okay, if that doesn't exist right now, I'm going to bide my time. I'm going to learn some skills. And I, I worked in multiple architecture firms. I actually worked at the Art Institute of Chicago, right as Millennium Park was opening. I worked on some projects that were that were fascinating. And I got to work with people that sometimes I didn't agree with. I got to be in rooms where I sometimes didn't belong. But I learned a lot from those couple years where I wasn't doing what I ultimately wanted to do. I think I learned a lot from just kind of grinding it out and putting something on my resume. I don't think there's anything wrong with working a job that isn't ideal and getting something out of it. And then... I was like, okay, I can't take it anymore. Yeah. 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 (laughs) There's always that, that point where you just kind of wake up one day and you're like, yeah, I've had enough. So for me, that day came in late 2007 and I was working for a company, a retail clothing company, and I was one of their store architects. So I was one of a few people who were responsible for the architecture of all this, all the stores in the U.S. And I made it three weeks. (laughs) I worked there for three weeks. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I about three weeks in, I remember finding myself in a meeting that was going on for way too long. We were like two hours in at this point, and the meeting was about doorknobs. <laughs> I had this like yeah, out of body experience. Yep, I was like, wow, uh, how far I've come from that construction site in Belize, and I'm uh, yeah. So I quit that day. I promised myself that I was only going to do work that felt meaningful and that I really wanted to do that in a way that felt autonomous. There's something that happens in the creative industries where, you know, when you're doing sort of low level grunt work, you end up doing creative work, but someone else is putting their name on it. And that sucks. So that was kind of the the aha moment when I put a stake in the ground and said, I'm going to do work that matters and I'm going to do it for myself and for others. How in the world did you go from that moment where, oh, guess what? I don't have a job as of today. I want to do meaningful work. I thought I might find it out in the world, pre-existing. I didn't. 
How did you go from that moment to, I mean, girls garage? Like, how did you pick? Because you could have picked international architecture. You could have created this any number of ways, frankly. So what was it that sort of, what guardrails came up where you went, I know, girls? Yeah, I mean, okay, so in hindsight, it makes more sense, right? Like at the time, I had no idea. And when people ask me, like, how did you start this? How could I do something similar? I always am like, you know what? It might look like I knew what I was doing back (laughs) then. Yeah, yeah. I only knew what felt right. And I only, like, I've always had such a strong gut. And so I just was like following my gut and working my butt off. And I'm also, I'm very, very like calculating. And I, if you, if you say, Emily, I need you to do these hundred things perfectly in a row, like I will do them. So I think at the beginning, starting a nonprofit requires a lot of that kind of like, you have to do these 15 things and file all this stuff. And it's easy to just kind of get lost in the bureaucracy of it. And so what you do have to have, and what I think I did have was those sort of core feeling of what I wanted to do, who I wanted to do it with, and and what I wanted the result to be. I did not actually at the beginning know this was going to be just about, about girls. In fact, in 2008, so I founded the nonprofit on January 8th, 2008. And I started it under a different name. It was at the time it was called Project H Design. And this is a perfect example. Like I had, I was like, I don't know, what do I call it? And I had written, I had scribbled on a napkin, a bunch of words. It was just like a brain dump. And I had written humanity, habitats, heart, and happiness. And I was like, great, that's a lot of H words. So <laughs> So I guess I'm going to call it Project H. I I told myself I would change the name later, and I didn't for years. But at the core, I knew that it should be a nonprofit. I wanted it to be in service and primarily about public benefit. I knew that I wanted to practice architecture and building in a way that was not egotistical, that was about physically building things, not just like doing drawings and giving them to contractors. Like I wanted to physically do the building. And I wanted to do that with other people and for people who were invested in the process of making architecture that would benefit a community. So that's like all I knew. That's, that was my mission statement. And so that was the birth of the, of the nonprofit in 2008. And I, I did that for, for many years, mostly with young people. It took lots of different forms. I did a bunch of Habitat for Humanity-ish projects. And then I ended up teaching a shop class, a curriculum that I wrote, um, a a shop class with community purpose. This was an all genders class. And it was working with young people under the umbrella of of the organization that really set me on the path to what has now become Girls Garage. And so I'm imagining that you're with the students or you're with teenagers and it's just everything's firing. The cylinders are firing. It's a this this amalgamation of what you love, what you're good at, what your expertise is, where your heart's at, and then you add this piece. This is it's a whole piece in and of itself. Like young girls, that by itself is like a a huge element to what it is that you do. So I just love it, and I'd love to hear what you have 
learned, what you have observed, what does this sort of work do in the hearts and minds of girls? How have you seen them affected? Why does this matter? Because frankly, you have these finished products that we, that we get why those matter. You are doing projects and service to the community. But then there's this whole other piece of who you're training and working with and, and raising up. And so what do you know now about what this sort of work is like in the lives of girls? So much, gosh. I mean, it's been, Girls Garage is going to its, next year's our 10th anniversary. So Amazing. we have a decade of of stories and and students and God, young people who, who have literally grown up next to me. So just as like a quick context backstory to why Girls Garage came to be just about girls. So I mentioned I was teaching this shop class. It was all gender. And we had built really cool stuff together. Like there's there's actually a documentary called If You Build It that's the story of the first project I ever did with kids in rural North Carolina. But anyway, long story short, after teaching this high school shop class for four years, I just remember looking around and we would be on a construction site, like we're building a tiny home. And I would say, okay, you know, I need someone to go cut four two by fours at 96 inches on the chop saw. And I could see every one of my female students, it's like their eyes would perk up and then they would kind of look around and do this like social calculus of like, should I, should I be the person to volunteer? Yeah. And then in that split second, there would be a male student that would be like, I got it. And end of discussion. And I saw this so many times and it was not it was not because they didn't know how to do it. That's right. It was not because they didn't want to do it. It was just this, it's so subtle. I know women know exactly what I'm talking about. It's that moment of like, I call it social calculus, where you're looking around the room being like, what do I do right now? And do I step up? Do I step back? And then it's over. So I just kept seeing this and I kept feeling like this is not okay with me. I'm also, uh, I'm a woman of color and I'm the teacher. This should not be happening in my classroom. So I started taking students, my female students, and working with them just as small groups. And it was a game changer. There would be like five of us and we would just crank. Like the communication was, it was a different world. It's incredible. Yeah, that was why I, I I had identified this wasn't about like, oh God, uh, the boys, blah. It wasn't like that. It was like it was so special when it was a group of young women. And I wanted to blow that up. So once once Girls Garage, I said, okay, well, you know, I put a stake in the ground once and said, This is the kind of work I want to do, and I'm gonna do it again and say, now we know how to do it. Let's do it with young women and trans and non-binary youth, everyone that feels like a construction site is not made for them. That's who I want to work with. And so Girls Garage started in 2013 as a summer camp, total experiment. Like I put up posters in coffee shops and at schools. It sold out in like a matter of days. Like you saw flyers? Just saw flyers. Yeah. And it was such a great reminder that when people say, oh, there aren't girls in STEM or architecture or the trades because they're not interested. I'm like, I have a wait list of 150. That is BS. That's just not true. It's just not true. So it's 2013. We did the first summer camp and every single year it's grown. We have our own space. We have a 3,600 square foot workshop in West Berkeley. 
as far as I know, and I would actually love to be proven wrong, but I am pretty sure this is the only like freestanding workshop for young girls to do construction in the country. There are a lot of other incredible programs, but I think having our own space is like, when you walk in, you, you, you get it. You're like, oh, I, I belong here. This is a space for me. And I think it, as the architect, like the, the architect in me, that was really important to create a space where young girls could walk in and s- literally see themselves in it. One of the first things that you see when you walk in, in our reception area on the left-hand wall, there's a tiled wall. There's all these wood tiles and every tile has the name of a student who's been here. And there's like a thousand of them. And so you walk in and your your name is literally on the wall alongside hundreds of other girls. So you don't ever have to doubt that you belong here. So to answer your original question, the thing that I think Girls Garage has has provided for a lot of young, young people is three things. One, of course, is the technical skills. I mean, we we teach carpentry, welding architectural design build. We build things at an architectural scale. We teach job site, like how to actually work on a job site. These are all skills. And we don't teach them in a, in a sort of diluted way. Like sure. you can right. walk on to a union yep. construction mm-hmm. site great. when you graduate and you'll know what's going on. So there's the technical skills. Um, mm-hmm. And those are very real and very measurable and tangible. The second thing is... I'm going to call it a family. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of young women who came here and after being here for a summer said, I had no idea I could be in a group of girls and not have it be catty. And I was like, gosh, I, of course, I remember that from my teenage years, but it never happens here. We have never once had a situation where we've had to like mediate something or break something up between like never. And so I think this is a place where young women can find a different kind of sisterhood that is real and completely supportive. It's not all rainbows. Like there's some stuff that's hard and we talk about hard stuff, but I think there's the assumption that you're safe here. You're safe here physically and you're safe here emotionally. And that happens because of because of the students, it happens also because of the adults. And we have 14 really, really phenomenal women and non-binary folks who are architects, engineers, carpenters, community activists, writers, and we are the staff. We've been the staff from the beginning. There are kids that have grown up taking classes from the same instructors for nine years. So there is a sense of, of family that I think is pretty special. And then the third thing is, I don't love the word empowerment, and I'll tell you why. I I, I know why people use it, but I don't love it because I think I think it implies that you're giving power to something that didn't have it. Yeah, and these girls already have it. It's Certainly, more about just amplifying it and making it tangible. So I won't call it empowerment, but I, I will call it maybe something adjacent, which is, you know, there there is a sense of power. And there's a sense of confidence and you walk in, you learn how to weld and you walk out a little taller. No doubt. Yeah. And so that thing, it doesn't matter to me whether students go into the trades or engineering or med school or 
they go to community college or they work for their family business. It actually does not matter to me. That is not the sole purpose. What matters to me is that no matter where you end up, you've been in a place where you know what it feels like to be seen and respected. And then you can go and demand that when you don't feel that way later. And that is what confidence gives to like, you are like, wait a second, I am not treated in the way that I know I should be. So I'm going to call you out and I'm going to ask for it. It's like a, an optimistic chip on your shoulder that I like, like it. I, you know, yes. it's like a little bit of like a, mm, no, this is how I will be treated. So that is a thing I've seen in so many instances, especially for the students that come here when they're nine and they just graduated from high school and you can just, you can see it. You can see what building has given them in that, in that way. It's so fun to hear you talk about this. I get just, I'm watching it like play as a reel in my head, like these girls learning and creating and building and developing confidence. And I want to ask you one last question, just from a higher level, if we sort of pulled up to the 20,000 foot view, because in that same Forbes article that I mentioned a minute ago, you also wrote, when girls begin to build the world they want to see, the bridges, buildings, and sidewalks will look fundamentally different. And on a deeper level, our world will shift toward equality. I'm interested in that. I believe that. And I'd love for you to break that down for us a little bit more because here we're on a micro level with saws and two by fours, but there is a huge higher level that's happening here. And I'd like to hear your take on it. Yeah. Thank you for asking that. So some of the statistics that, that we hear about, you know, like in the trades, when you include administrative positions, only like 11% of the entire construction trade is female. And on a construction site, it's even worse. It's like 4%, 4% of construction workers are female. So I think we hear these statistics and our instinct is to think like, oh my gosh, why? Like what caused that? Like we see those statistics and we think, oh, that's the effect of a lot of systemic injustice or privilege or whatever, like a whole, whole list of things. We see those statistics as the effect, but actually like that's true. And I, we can talk about and identify what has caused these statistics. But also, I, I like to think about and remind people that those statistics are also the cause of injustice in the world. When we have that level of underrepresentation in a lot of different fields, it means that the world that we're making and the world that we're building, the physical world, this is true in other industries too, in, you know, in medicine, in law, like this is not specific to the world of building, but it means that our built environment is being constructed by a very narrow portion of the population. And it comes with blind spots. It comes with a lack of, of empathy sometimes. And it just means that we're missing out on so many different perspectives. When you walk around your neighborhood or you walk down a, a city block pretty much everything you can see or point to was designed and built by men. And that's a thing you can't unsee. Like I'm looking around the room I'm in now and there's, you know, computers and tables and this building I'm in like designed by men. And so to me this is not a thing to just sit around and lament. It's actually 
incredibly hopeful to me when I think, what would the world look like if it was built by women or by more people of color or by people with differing physical abilities or people of different ages? Like a 15-year-old and an 85-year-old would think about a public sidewalk so differently. It's good. So this is like my real dream that Girls Garage is, is of course about these physical skills, but it's about like reimagining a world that is authored by a broader group of people. That's so good. I firmly, firmly believe that a world designed by women is a world designed for everyone because we consider, and I don't, I don't like to rely on stereotypes, but I do know that that women think about space and think about belonging and and public space in a very different way. And it's often more equitable, often more communal and and more considered of the human experience. Mm. That data bears out when you look at what happens in any given community when women are educated and put in positions of authority and creation and leadership, it's literally good for the whole community. The GDP rises. Yeah. I mean, women are good for the world, period. Like period. We yeah. communally, we think about our neighbor. We think about the lived experience of the people around us in a way that's really special and specific. And so yeah. why wouldn't this apply to the world we build with our hands? Of course it would. Of course it does. And this, like you said, there is, there's data that supports this, right? Like people yeah. know that having more gender parity on a board of directors yields greater profits. Like this is not just about right. diversity for diversity's sake. It is, it is also about like efficacy and equity and access. And in some cases, even profits, if like, that's the thing that you need to hear, like that is also true. So it just, I'm teaching a, a, a course at Stanford this winter called A World Built by Women. And this is the entirety of the course. Like, it's a dream I have. It is It is not to say that everything in the world that's been built is bad, but it is, it's a great dream to think about, like, what would our world look like if we truly all had a place in shaping it? I just feel like that is the most as a young architecture student, like that's what I needed to hear. That would have made me feel like, okay, I do have a place in architecture. And so that's also the message I try to to convey to kids that like by being at Girls Garage, like you are actually already part of shaping the world because we just built that greenhouse down the street and we just built that chicken pavilion and we just built that bus stop. And these are things in your community being used by everyone. That's fantastic, Emily. I love it. I'm obsessed. It thrills me. I have daughters who are young adults and teenagers. And it just thrills me to know that women are basically in every sector of the world right now, working toward equity and representation and leadership. And it's such good news for everybody. It's good news for the girls for sure, but it's good news for the world. So absolutely. Okay. I've got one last question for you. Everybody gets this every every person on this show. You can answer this however you want, Emily. It it, it could be ridiculous. It could be earnest. It's whatever you're in the mood to say today. So we get it all and we love it all. I borrowed this question from another person. What is saving your life right now? Ooh, you know, I think the thing saving my life right now are uh, as the, the daily unexpected random texts from my girlfriends from all over the country saying, I love it. just checking in on you or 
here's a link to this, a silly video. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I think the pandemic has really reminded me how important it is to have a band of, of women around oh, me. Oh man, I would die without mine. It's irreplaceable. It is, there's some of the most, if not the most important relationships in my life. And they have saved my life on so many occasions when I've been in really dark places, did not want to keep going. It's amazing what like a little bit of just reaching out and saying, I'm, I'm here. It's, no, it makes all the difference. No, no doubt. Uh, I tell my little band of girls, I'm like, you are right at the very tip top of like the greatest love story of my life. So couldn't do without them. Don't want to do it. Won't ever find out. So, okay. Finally, will you just kind of tell my listeners, I'm going to have a lot of really interested people in who you are and in your work and in your story. And so where's the best place to find out more about you and follow you? You can get a lot of information at the Girls Garage website. It's www.girlsgarage.org. We also use our Instagram kind of as like a daily journal. There's a lot of fun content on there and you can follow specific projects of ours unfolding. So we're at underscore Girls Garage on Instagram. And yeah, I have a TED Talk that's fairly recent. I did a crazy thing. I built a toolbox on stage while talking somehow. I like I'm not good at multitasking, but somehow pulled that off. So if you go to TED.com, you can search for my name and my TED Talk is there. So unfortunately, like not everyone on the planet can physically come to Girls Garage, but I also published a book called Girls Garage that's an encyclopedia of tools and projects. And so for anyone who is like feeling intimidated about picking up a tool, I promise you like this book, it will make it feel like this is completely accessible. It will lift the veil of, of, you know, anyone or anything that's made you feel like this is not for you. And, you know, there's a huge community of, of women who are sister builders for you. I love it. It's the best. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show today. I am so delighted to have met you and just to have access to who you are and what you're doing in the world. I'm so encouraged. I just can't tell you. I can't wait to like get off of this call and go talk about it. Thank you, Jen. Just so happy. I'm just in your corner. Any way I can ever support you and support your work and what you are creating and innovating and imagining, I'm here to do it. Thank you. And, you know, right back at you. Thank you for this platform and for telling such inspiring stories. Absolutely. Okay. I hope you found that as like stimulating as I did. Think about what we're sitting on. And I love thinking about this idea of a world built at least alongside women in in proportion. That just, anyway, I'm going to be thinking about this. I, I told her when we got off the call, the next time I am in your area, I'm coming. I'm coming to Girls Crutch. I just want to see it with my eyes. We have more to come in this incredible series just like this. Just really the kind of women that I just love, that are inspiring and innovating and taking risks and going for it, whatever it is in their world. And I hope that it translates to us as a podcast community. Thank you for being here. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, do it. We're everywhere. You can listen to podcasts and we're also always on YouTube. We video record every single interview. And so if you ever want to watch an interview, which is such a fun way to consume it, 
you can pop over to my YouTube channel and we have so much more to come for you in this series, but also in this whole year. And we are so glad you're here. So on behalf of our whole crew, we love you and we'll see you next week.